Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 28 of Docs After Dark. This is our episode for October of 2020, and we've got some uh, very interesting guest speakers with us today. We'll introduce them in just a moment. Uh, as always, I'm Jeff Schoenberger, and I have with me... Danielle Davis-Rowe. And I'm John Federico. So we'll dive into uh, to some guests in just a minute or so. Uh, we do have uh, one bit of news related to the uh, world of document assembly, document automation, and software. And Danielle's going to tell us about what's going on with Latera. Yeah, Latera is unveiling two new offerings. They are unveiling Latera Litigate, which is designed to transform how legal teams draft and collaborate within their new Latera work ecosystem. And they are also unveiling Latera Transact, which is designed to enable global deal management within a single workspace. So if you're in either of those two practice areas, you're already working um, with Latera's ecosystem. Those might be some exciting new offerings to consider checking out. Sounds awesome. I someday hope to be famous and wealthy enough to need software to manage my global deal making. Uh, so let's go ahead and dive into the uh, meat of today's topic. And we have a couple of wonderful guests, and I know they're wonderful because I've already had drinks with them at a bar. Uh, and they are the fine folks at Woodpecker. Alex and Helen, uh, tell us a little bit about yourselves. I can go first. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. Um, yeah, my name's uh, Alex Malahi. I'm the founder of Woodpecker, um, and uh, my background's primarily in uh, software engineering, product management. Um, I started Woodpecker to solve what I felt was a uh, really pervasive problem in legal tech that no one was doing anything about, and uh, existing solutions weren't um, weren't uh, weren't helping folks with. So. Uh, thankfully, uh, people have taken notice, and uh, we are uh, we're continue to grow pretty quickly. Nice. And Helen? Yes, thanks, Jeff. Uh, my name is Helen Coyne. I'm the Director of Marketing and Customer Success at Woodpecker. Um, so basically, I'm in charge of branding and letting people know um, exactly what we do. And then once they're on board, making sure that... Um, that our part that they're successfully onboarded with Woodpecker and that we help them achieve their desired outcomes. Awesome. So um, we've we've talked about a lot of document assembly software over the uh, twenty seven previous episodes. What would you say uh, makes Woodpecker unique? What what does it bring to the market that that makes it stand out as as the platform that you should choose? I think our focus on being Microsoft Word first is sort of the major thing that uh, most of our customers love us for. Um, as you know, most attorneys know, Word is the uh, Word is the de facto platform for the legal industry, essentially. But working within it uh, using third-party software has been a pretty big pain, um, uh, you know, uh, over over time uh, or even recently, and. Um, and what we have done is put all of our effort towards making sure that folks can get the functionality uh, of a web application right from the comfort of Microsoft Word. Um, that coupled with the fact that document automation historically has also been uh, really, really tough to implement and uh, takes a really long time to get onboarded, um, six to 24 months sometimes we've heard uh, because of the complexities of setting this stuff up. And so what we've done is developed some, uh, some AI, uh, some natural language processing to actually automatically turn 
existing legal documents into templates um, by analyzing them for for all sorts of different uh, different things and ultimately shortening shortening that uh, onboarding cycle to uh, days instead of months. And that's awesome. Yeah, I mean that's that's been our experience with a lot of projects that we've come into later. That as, as you mentioned, it's there's a lot of upfront stuff, and then by the you know getting it all deployed in a, in a timely manner is is really the uh, one of the biggest challenges you face, especially if you're in one of those areas of law that's you know evolving rapidly, or or there's a lot of uh, customizations that you have to make. And the more overhead there is in doing that, the harder it is to get something deployed. Um, so. What made you, or what was the the thought process of doing a web first approach? And and do you mean word first? Uh, well, yeah, word, and and then it's it's on the web, so you can use it on multiple word based platforms. So, uh, I you know Mac, PC, um, that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. So so um, so because uh, you know the the, the way that. Uh, software is going is is very much towards you know the cloud-based uh, version of things web-based um, developing one application that can sort of seamlessly run in any environment that someone might need it um, so thanks to um, Microsoft's sort of latest word and office add-in architecture that they uh, they launched um, to be compatible with uh, office 2013 or later developers can now um, or uh, or uh, software vendors can now, develop single applications that run on Word Online, Word for PC, Word for Mac, Word for iPad, um, any of the above, without having to develop and maintain individual software packages that, uh, you know, ship yearly, for example. Um, The benefit, uh, in in addition to having a cloud-based application like this, is that things get are automatically updated. Just like if you were to log into Facebook or Gmail or whatever it is, you're going to get the latest bug fixes and features each time you load up that page. Um, the benefit of that is that as a user, you don't have to do any sort of updating. Uh, everything just happens um, automatically for you. And the natural extension of, of that sort of a functionality is now into the software as a service realm, which we are a software as a service or SaaS uh, platform, which basically means that your subscription gets you constant updates, bug fixes, and new features um, without having to do anything. And I was um, I was perusing some of the notes uh, from our or one of our earlier uh, episodes, and so one of the things that we mentioned, uh, I think, on last month's episode or last month's recording, it'll be out for you folks in uh, Radio Land very shortly. Uh, that you guys added the uh, some page break functionality, and so when I fire up Word on my Mac, I'm going to get that automatically. By virtue of the uh, the nature of your architecture, exactly, exactly, and um, the you know I'm, I'm glad you brought up that feature because one of the most difficult things, right? I think that's another another major piece of value about Woodpecker and that we put a lot of effort into is is styling and formatting. Um, a lot of solutions historically, again, because of the complexity of Word itself, um, struggle with formatting and styling uh, of, of complex or even very customized legal documents. Um, so we've, we've done a lot and we continue to uh, iterate on, on supporting as much of the custom styling and, function, and formatting that we can. You know, the page break uh, functionality is, is, again, just sort of like the latest, the latest iteration on that stuff. But you're exactly right, Jeff. You, you launch Woodpecker today uh, and the page break functionality is automatically available to you. You didn't have to do anything, and none of your previous templates or documents are are going to get going to get affected in any negative way. 
Nice. That, that is awesome. And I think, um, you know, when I, my, my father, you know, just to, let's go off a little bit off track, uh, started with computers very late in life and that, um, you know, he was, he, we got him a MacBook air, one of the originals. So like the one Steve jobs pulled out of the envelope, not the, not the ones most people recognize where they sold hundreds of millions of them or whatever. Uh, and so, he got that about six months before the iPad came out. And then, you know, the iPad is so much better for folks just getting into technology. And I think of like software that automatically updates without you having to do anything without remembering to go and check for updates or that sort of thing. is just the way we're going to be doing so much in the future. And I know they've, you know, they've, they've done that sort of with Microsoft word that it updates fairly regularly. If you're a 365 subscriber, um, so I think the more that we get into that, as far as like from a just a usability and a feature and a security standpoint, the better off we are. And uh, transitioning on that, uh, so speaking about security and updates, uh, as you probably know, working from law firms, they're not the most advanced up-to-date people necessarily with technology. Do you have any sort of experience working with firms that are deploy that are working on older versions of Word or Windows and what sort of things have you encountered there? Yeah, yeah, you 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 hit the nail on the head. Unfortunately, I think it's a, it's an understatement. Uh, a lot of folks are, you know, um, working with technologies and and uh, even security best practices or or lack thereof that are pretty uh, archaic and and kind of, you know, uh, the very much the old way of doing things. And law and legal is one of the those industries similar to healthcare where um, folks have been able to get away with, you know, not really uh, sort of coming into the 21st century in terms of technology for, for a very long time. Um, but, you know, uh, it's, I think that the the global pandemic has sort of acted as a little bit of a push out of the nest for a lot of folks and a lot of firms where they're now being forced um, to uh, actually start to adopt uh, some of these new technologies and ways of doing things. Um, So that's a silver lining, I suppose, right. Uh, Depending on who you are, but you know, some of the things we've seen uh, you know, when talking to, to customers, right. um, Are, you know, a law firm that, that I can think of off the top of my head, we, we were, you know, going in and talking about their current document automation solutions and where they wanted to be and where they wanted to go. Um, and we found that they were still on Windows 7 and they were using Word 2010, um, knowing full well that both of these, uh, Windows 7 especially, were about to be sunsetted. Um, I think I think at least one of these is is going to be sunset at the end of this year or even, even this fall. Um, and the response that we got from them was, well, uh, it's not a problem because we have a third-party IT team that's going to go ahead and keep maintaining this stuff for us. Um, But what they sort of didn't really realize was that this means that Microsoft stops releasing updates for these products, which means security vulnerability fixes, bug fixes, um, any of that. And so, sure, you can have your third-party IT company continue to support you whenever you run into a problem, but not updating to, you know, Word 2016 or even the latest version of Windows is ultimately now creating security vulnerabilities uh, for the entire firm. Uh, and the person that was telling me this was the IT director. So it was a little bit disheartening. Um, Good so, Lord. <laughs> so I, uh, I, I uh, always recommend to folks that... Um, they should really be just using the most up-to-date thing and, and, and prioritizing switching to that stuff um, because ultimately it's going to come back and bite you uh, potentially uh, if, you, you know, if you don't do something. 
yeah, that's, I mean, that's just, I think that's fundamental. And that, you know, if um, whoever they have at the firm that's, you know, responsible for not just the IT budget, but like almost like as a lawyer, you, you know, depending on where your rules of professional conduct are, there might be some obligation that you not have, uh, not have software that's not being patched for bugs or, or, you know, any sort of particularly intrusive uh, vulnerabilities. So that's, that's very interesting that they're going to find someone else who's going to maintain windows and, uh, and office for them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I think there is a, and, the, and I'm not uh, versed enough in this, right. But there is, there is some, um, some set of uh, professional conduct, at least in some of the, some of state bars that say, you know, thou shalt use technology uh, as much as you can for the benefit of your client. Right. And of course it's very vague, but I think that, um, I think that the evolution of that sort of a responsibility uh, over the next you know, decade or so is going to be really interesting because ultimately, if you know that you can deliver a service to your client by using technology uh, and that it's secure, accurate, and you can do it in half the time that you otherwise could have, don't you have an obligation to deliver that service to your client in the most efficient way, right? So oh, yeah. I think that's a really uh, interesting question that's, that more and more people are going to have to sort of come to terms with. You know, and, and Alex, in terms of compatibility with, with Woodpecker, Word 2010 wouldn't work with it because I don't think it supports the modern add-in architecture, does it? Exactly. And that, and uh, I'm <laughs> glad you asked, John, because that was the end of our conversation with this law firm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, glad we, we, we got it resolved up front. And, uh, you know, again, that's, I think, one example of that's another reason to, uh, to you know, not only use newer stuff because it's it's, you know, security patched and updated and all that good stuff, but... Also, things built on top of it um, are not going to work with the old the old versions, right? So you you don't get to use them. Yeah. And so, when, what 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 versions of Word do you guys support with your add-in? Word twenty thirteen or later. Um, so okay. that you know that means that you could have a standalone installation of twenty thirteen. You could have a desktop version of Office three sixty five installed. You could have Word online. Uh, so anything later than twenty thirteen. And so the, the modern add-ins are different from the traditional sort of add-ins. And I, and I guess I kind of want to want to back up a little bit because I'm sure most people don't understand what the difference is between those two. And, um, you know, the way, the way I look at it is, you know, the traditional add-ins are com add-ins. They're installed directly on your computer. Um, and they work really with the Windows operating system partially exactly. because it uses com calls and DLLs that get called versus the add-in, the word modern add-in is... I don't know if I want to call it a web page, but it's a it's a web API that is built into Word that can actually call out and use services over the web as opposed to using a, a local DLL library on your computer. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So um, a com add-in, just as you said, right, is a OS and Office or Word version specific software package that you know is 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 or was sold to you in a box with a CD-ROM, mm-hmm. right? It's probably now just downloaded uh, with an executable, right? It's what people are. A lot of people mm-hmm. who have worked with these things for a while are used to. And the problem with those is again, they're not cloud-based. They don't update automatically. It's you know OS and version specific, and so it becomes very difficult as a vendor to maintain that sort of a thing. And you know if you buy it. As a one-off, uh, you might need to pay for the update right a year later or so. Um, the The benefit of the um, the new add-in architecture, and I think they just call them JavaScript add-ins, 
um, is that basically it's a, it's a web application. So it's HTML, it's CSS, it's JavaScript running within what is an iframe uh, within Word itself. And the sort of three different pieces of, of this architecture are iframe running a web application that's served from some URL, right? Ours is app.woodpeckerweb.com. Um, and the second piece is the document itself. Uh, so the actual XML file that's being opened and viewed in Word. And the third piece uh, is a JavaScript library that Microsoft makes available for JavaScript add-ins that sort of acts as the glue between the web application and the um, and the document itself. And it acts as a sort of API for the add-in to make any manipulations on the document. So that's that's you know basically how how our app works is it it makes all sorts of calls and does some fancy things on top of um, this Office JS uh, JavaScript library that sits in between the application and the document itself. Sure, and 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 really, I mean, I think the web ed, you know, web apps are sort of a it's a it's a it's a double edged sword in in some ways because you know with the modern add-ins, if you're not connected to the internet, does it still work? Great question, uh, and the answer is no. Right. Okay. Um, so, yeah. And you, so you 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 uh, you need to be connected to the Internet. Right. Um, and uh, that is a that's that's a restriction. But in all honesty, if if, uh, you know, there's there's uh, we're going to get to a world very soon where there is no place on Earth that doesn't have Internet. I agree. I think I think probably like five years ago, that would have been a much bigger deal. Agreed. Than um than it is today, and I think you know the internet is ubiquitous because I mean you know even on a plane you can get internet if you had to, but if you didn't pay for the extra internet package on the airplane, you're not going to be um, necessarily using your web apps then. Right, uh, exactly, and it is so, a trade off. It yeah, is a trade off. So, so there is a trade off there. Okay, definitely. Okay. I would just yeah. like to note there are still places here in the United States where there is no internet. I realize that changes are coming quickly there, but it is possible to escape the internet and cellular signal at least for another few months here. <laughs> Very good point. And, some t- and I, I can attest because I have tried to find places where I can totally unplug. Uh, and it, it's difficult, but they do exist. If you need recommendations, I can send you some, Alex. I would love, I would love that. And I, I think the other interesting thing about modern add-ins is they're, is they're sort of platform neutral. So you have this requirement that you have to have internet, but at the same time, the modern add-in architecture is platform neutral, whereas the, the, the old Word add-ins that use COM, or older, I should say, I don't want to call them old because there's still tons of them out there that are great, but, but the older Word add-ins that are COM-based, you have to have Windows for those to work. Or they have to be specially coded for 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 Mac, for instance. But the modern add-ins, because they're sort of platform neutral and they rely on web-based technologies, you know, the same web add-in that you code for Word for Windows also works on Word for Mac, and also uh, you know Word for Web. Uh, in that instance, is that right? Exactly, exactly. And that's that's uh, you know a good good chunk of our. Uh our customers are, are Mac users, right? And even uh, some of our, our customers are, are dual uh, shops, right? Some people are using Macs, some people are using PCs. Uh, even how sometimes sometimes someone really fancy has a Linux machine, right? But that's okay. Mm-hmm. I'd never even thought of that. So um, everything, I'd never think about Linux. Sorry, John. Um, <laughs> that's all right. Or are you a BSD? I guess they're all Linux, right? Yeah. If you're, no, you're BSD old, is not Linux, but anyway, yeah. go ahead. Okay, sorry. <laughs> There, um, so it'll if you've got like I don't know if they Chromium or whatever you run on Linux, all the all the functionality of Office and, and the uh, like the Woodpecker add-ins will work on Linux. 
Oh, awesome. Well, that's, let's let's back up a second because it'll work. They'll work on Linux in terms of they'll work in the in the Word web app. Um, so if you're looking for like a native Word experience on Linux, I don't think Microsoft has released no. Word yet for Linux, but it will work in the web browser in a in a in a uh, in Microsoft Word Online. Right. Um, exactly. Know, the, yeah. The the thing is, is that you have to realize that Word Online does not have as full featured as uh, it doesn't have the full set of features that word for windows does or word for mac has those are still are the two powerhouses in terms of microsoft word um the the web version and i haven't used the ipad version in a long time but i'm assuming that's not feature uh it doesn't have the same features that no. word for windows or mac does the ipad's so, really limited especially when it comes to creating styles and I, I guess that would be my my other question to Alex is that you know we, you talked a little about formatting tools and things like that. Um, have you had you know any any issues or have you developed any tools that sort of you know take away that 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 difference because you know creating styles in Word Online is is uh, I don't even know if you can do it. It's no you you can it'll use the styles at least on the iPad. I'm not sure how right. different the iPad and, and online are. On the iPad, if you've created a document with styles, you can use and apply them, but you cannot modify or delete them. Right. And they have to be in the styles gallery to use yeah. them. Yeah. So have you have you run into any of those issues or have you have you thought about that at all? Um, in terms of you know having this this add-in that works in the, in the web version of Word, which I agree probably isn't the most ideal use case, but um, I'm just kind of curious. Yeah, and and um, and I'll be the first to say that you know styling and formatting in Word is like the biggest bane of our existence. Um, <laughs> so so it's you know because as everyone knows, like styling in Word is is can be very complex, especially if people are doing custom stuff. Um, and there's not a lot of consistency sometimes between, you know, if you're trying to transition a document between Word Online or Word Desktop or even across um, across platforms. Um, but what we, we've done is, like I said, we put a lot of effort into trying to make styling as intuitive and uh, functional as possible. Um, there are always cases where, you know, someone's trying to do something with a very specific set of styles and, you know, it, it's not working correctly, right? So then we go in and we, you know, we patch a bug or we add an extra feature to make that thing work. Um, the the sort of realm that we're in now is that we've, we've handled, you know, the majority of formatting and styling use cases, but there always are those that, that sort of pop up and we kind of handle them on a case-by-case basis, determine is this something that, you know, that is inherent to Word that is you know, not going to be really easily fixed, or is this something that we can fix by making an adjustment to the application um, or a combination thereof? So, uh, you know, like I said, and then Helen has more experience with this stuff than I do because she's dealing with um, with our customers' templates sort of on a daily basis. But there are folks that have very complex styles that that you know sometimes it's it's uh, no matter what document automation solution you have, it's going to be a huge pain. Mm. Helen, what kind of what kind of experience have you had, you know, um, with with formatting? Because I mean, formatting is always a big issue with Word documents, no matter what you're doing. Um, does does Woodpecker have some tools built in that help people style documents? Um, we do. So we have uh, things like we have a, a multi-select feature, and with the, so that you can 
create a dropdown. And instead of only choosing one option in the dropdown, you can choose multiple options in the, in the dropdowns. And they can be values. They could be values in other fields. They could be clauses that you're pulling out of your clause library. Um, and then you can choose a separator uh, for those different items. So you can put them in a list format, um, but with bullet points in a list form with mm-hmm. members, you can put them in a list form in a, um, in a sentence mm-hmm. separated by comma or separated by blank line. We also have a rich text field. Um, so most of our fields, like our single line um, text field, our multi-line text fields, inherit the styling of the document wherever they're inserted into the document. Mm-hmm. But we do have one field of rich text fields, which basically is... Um, just converts the code to like an HTML code when it's rendered on the page where you're mm-hmm. able to add font styling such as underlines and bold and um, you can do some um, alignment you can do some justification um, there okay. as well. do you guys do you guys um, you know use use word styles at all when you do that or is that more of uh, just sort of uh, you know manual formatting type of thing yeah, we we don't use word styles, and the reason is that um, we we run into all sorts of stuff where you would think that it would be uh, pretty easy and intuitive to do, like for example, utilizing word styles. Um, but when you get into the code and you get into the library that Microsoft makes available, there's no option to do so. So we we don't um, integrate with word styles. That being said, you could of course define all your word styles in your document, use them wherever you want, and then um, use woodpecker fields within you know let's say a paragraph that's using a word style. Okay. And that you know we won't touch it at all. But we don't have the ability for you to you know, set a word style from within Woodpecker or even pull out the styles you've set in the document and display them to you. Um, so the way, you know, we try to be as as le- the least invasive as possible to words native functioning. And one of those things is is word style. So we work alongside it, but we don't, let's say, okay. like, integrate with it. Yeah, no, I, I misunderstood, Nick. I, I, when you were talking about styling a document before, I thought you actually had a specific tool that would, um, would, uh, you know, help you manipulate the styles in Word. But um, yeah, as long as, you know, but but like I, you know, but most automations don't have that. They just rely on the native Word styles, you know, and make you, do, you style out the template. So that's, that's pretty standard. That's pretty standard. Okay. Uh, so um, moving off from a little bit of the development side, although we'll come back to it and John, you can lead a discussion of agile development. Uh, let's talk a little bit about some, uh, some use cases. So um, you've, you've been out for, I don't, I'm not sure, like two or three years. How long has Woodpecker been around? Yeah, we've been around for uh, three, three and a half now. All right. And that's, that's awesome. Um, let's talk about what some, uh, what some of your customers have done, how they've used the product. Uh, do you have any good uh, success stories, war stories, combination of the two? <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think um, the one that comes to mind is a, uh, a small firm that was, um, that's mainly focused on, on family law. Um, and what they were able to do uh, was essentially um, they, um, they were able to obviously standardize and automate their sort of frequently used used documents, right? Whether those um, are, you know, anything from an engagement letter to, you know, divorce docs to child custody stuff, right? Um, and they used Clio as well for their practice management uh, platform and for storing all of their client data, you know, managing tasks, et cetera. Um, and what they were able to do is actually plug Woodpecker uh, into Clio because Clio has a sort of basic document um, building 
uh, set of building functionality, but it's it's pretty limited. Um, and they, you know, these these folks, uh, along with a lot of our customers that use Clio, realized they wanted something more. Um, and so, fortunately, thanks to our open API and our integration with a platform called Zapier, uh, which basically is just like glue for uh, various different applications, um, they were able to actually plug Woodpecker into Clio uh, and say all right, you know, whenever I get this new client, automatically generate an engagement letter for them and then send it off to them and notify me. And then, you know, maybe if I leave a tag on this client that says, uh, um, you know, child custody case, right, generate a whole uh, set of documents behind the scenes using that client's information and then email them to me and to the client at the same time, right? So they were able to actually set up this this entire um this entire uh, workflow that's automated and in the process um, take some of their, their paralegals and actually have them focus on uh, more valuable work, right? Stuff that actually started to bring more revenue into the firm rather than, you know, toiling away on these sort of manual processes. And, the, and I don't know either, maybe you or, or Helen could speak to this. Um, do you, do you help them with Zapier? Because, I don't know. I don't know how approachable it is. I've looked at. I've done it a little bit myself, but how approachable it would be for like the normal attorney or legal professional uh, setting that sort of thing up? We do. Um, we help. We help folks uh, as much as we can. What our our sort of support methodology is um, because we're a small team and because we you know put our effort more towards building really intuitive products that people can figure out. Um, rather than hiring a giant support staff, mm-hmm. um, the way the, our methodology is to try to um, empower people to teach themselves uh, as much as possible. So we have a, a pretty large help center, uh, community uh, forum, sort of a site. Uh, there's all sorts of tutorials and videos and stuff, even surrounding Zapier. Right. So, firstly, we usually direct people to, hey, here's how to get up and running with Zapier. We actually specifically have a Woodpecker Zapier and Clio tutorial. Um, on our website that folks nice. can, can walk through. Um, but then if they need more help after that, we're happy to uh, kind of consult on, you know, here's the best way to do this. If they are trying to do something that's pretty large um, and, you know, overhaul or even set up like a giant uh, firm-wide automation project, we usually loop in one of our um, consulting partners uh, that uh, ultimately can help folks um, set that up for them uh, so that uh, they can get what they need quick. And so this this firm you're you're talking about, they're not doing just like necessarily one document at a time. They could they could do you know several if they wanted to. Um, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So I've, I think they've managed to uh, plug in uh, maybe fifty different templates into this uh, this automated workflow, right? So like I said, anything from an engagement agreement to a you know uh, trust and estate packet to a uh, child custody packet uh, containing ten different templates, for example. That sounds really awesome. Maybe we'll uh, we'll talk offline about if if they'd be willing to come on and talk about their their automation. That would be pretty neat for sure. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to throw it over to you, John, and uh, and you can lead the discussion of agile development since you know what it is. <laughs> well, I know a little bit about it, but uh, we were talking about that, and I guess um, you know what uh, you know you you iterate pretty fast on features. Do you want to talk a little bit about your development process? Yeah, definitely. So we, um, you know, we, like you mentioned, right, we, we have a very, uh, very much so an agile, um, style development process. Now we're, you know, 
oftentimes folks aren't fully agile, especially in our uh, sort of a early stage startup uh, space, because we kind of pick and choose the things that we like uh, from the from the process. But um, for all intents and purposes, we, uh, we we focus on a cycle of, you know, hypothesize uh, either from uh, a customer story that we receive or even a customer need. We hypothesize a solution. We come up with the minimum viable product, uh, as it were. We release that and we see uh, if that solves the problem. And then we continue to iterate, right? So that's sort of the, the methodology is, is you know, getting something out into the world and letting people and users battle test it um, to make sure that it's actually something they want. Um, what we don't want to do is get into a situation which is uh, sort of very much the the waterfall mentality of building a bunch of stuff, right? That takes six months that we think people are going to want releasing it and then realizing no one wants it. And now we've wasted six months. Mm. And how much input, you know, do you, do you take from customers on that? What's awesome is that our entire roadmap is driven by our customers. Um, so, you know, we don't, we don't sit in a room, uh, you know, once a quarter and uh, spend, you know, a full day deciding on what we're going to build for the next three months. We already have that list when it comes to the beginning of the quarter, because we've already been gathering feedback from customers. We've been having meetings with them. We've already prioritized what's most important to people, what's going to move the needle the most, not only for them, but for us. Um, so the short answer to the question is that um, our customers basically drive everything we do, which is awesome because they're telling us, you know, the way we view it is that uh, we're sort of, um, you know, we're sort of like uh, our customers, you know, builders, right? They, they tell us, here's what we need, and then we go and do it, and then uh, they're happy to pay us for it. That's great. Have you had any, have you had any, like, what, what, what would be, I have two questions, and what, what would be the, the best feature implementation that you got out of a client? And I guess, what would be the hardest one that you know you either had trouble doing or, or couldn't do? Great questions. Um, I think the the biggest sort of um, one you know the, I think the biggest bang for our buck uh, in terms of you know features that our customers specifically asked us for uh, that comes to mind um, are probably pr- probably the the multi populate uh, feature that we've developed um, uh, as well as um, the external questionnaires feature. So the multi-populate feature, right? I mean, naturally when Woodpecker was, was an infant, uh, the capability was to be able to populate and generate a single document uh, at a time. But of course that now lends itself to, well, okay, great that I can generate the single document, but I want to be able to generate a hundred at the same time with the same client's information. Um, so that was, you know, that was a very early request from a lot of our customers. Uh, and that I think is, has been the one of the biggest ones that comes to mind. The the other is uh, the ability for folks to actually expose their woodpecker templates to the outside world um, without requiring the outside world to have Word or even have Woodpecker. Uh, and that's that's probably the newest thing that we've we've released, which is a external questionnaires feature where folks can mm. you know, send a questionnaire to opposing counsel, clients, whoever it is, generate a whole set of woodpecker templates without um, without that person having to sign into word or have a woodpecker account or anything like that. So do they get the, uh, do they get the, the, when the client or opposing counsel or whomever gets the questionnaire and they do it, do they then get the final document or does the questionnaire and the subsequent produced documents come back to the firm that sent it out? They come back to the firm that sent it out. Um, they're, 
uh, will be <laughs> a setting to uh, flip that uh, if you like. But right now, out of the box, it um, basically the the questionnaire responses as well as the finished documents come back to the questionnaire creator. And is one of the things on the roadmap maybe like letting firms host that on their website so they can like do like an intake or something, and then you would get a report that you could then process for client intake or something like that, or referrals or things like that? Yeah, actually that capability um, already exists today. So any questionnaire you generate uh, a, will give you a, um, a basically a shareable link. Um, so that link can go be put wherever wherever they like, right? So that could be on your website, that could be sent in an email, that could be, you know, wherever. Um, longer term, what we'd like to do is is instead of having that be a link on someone's website, actually have an embeddable widget uh, that's a little bit more visual. Um, but for now, uh, clients are actually already taking advantage of that, uh, that, re- that shareable link and putting it on their websites for, say, client intake. Nice. And is that, um, does it meet like HIPAA or whatever the, you know, any sort of elevated privacy standards? That, or has that not been a big call from, uh, from users yet? Uh, yeah, the short answer is it doesn't. Um, and that hasn't really been a requirement that our, our customers have told us that they, they need. Now, you know, in the future, as we expand, maybe that's something that, uh, that now, um, now becomes a requirement. I, you know, I think that by no means will we, do we claim that we're, you know, this is HIPAA compliant, right? But I think that if we needed to, that wouldn't be far off. Um, we're pretty, pretty security focused and, and sensitive and everything's built on AWS and, and pretty buttoned up. So, you know, who knows? That might be that might be a uh, route we go down eventually. And then, what's what's the hardest request you've gotten, or most bizarre request that you just <laughs> said no way, or or you had trouble doing? Yeah, um, you know, I think that um, that some of the stuff is you know in, in product development, especially software product development, and especially when our roadmap is driven by our users, um, it's it's oftentimes difficult to determine if a given feature request is one, something someone actually needs, or if it's just something they think they need. And two, um, if this request is just a one-off or if it's going to apply to a large chunk of users. So for example, um, one feature that we're, we're still ideating on and eventually will have, but uh, needs, there needs to be some more research around it, is the idea of um, global fields. So, for example, if I wanted to have a set of fields that was usable across all of my templates, but that were standard in a single location, and I wanted to put permissioning around them, around editing them and using them across my team, um, that is a, you know, in our current architecture, it's a, it's a pretty sticky, uh, sticky uh, thing to solve. Um, because if, you know, if, uh, you know, you have these shareable templates that are stored in, in your document collection, which is basically our DMS for templates, um, what if you change one of them? How should that affect others? How should that affect other users? So it's, it's kind of a multi-thorned multi, uh, mm. uh, solution. And what's most difficult about it is that um, it's not like all of our users are asking for this every day, but we do know that there's a, a chunk um that that really wanted and really needed and have asked been asking for it for a while but we know that it's actually a large lift on our end right so Mm -hmm. this might you know it might take us several months um but we need to know that ultimately that several months of development is going to translate into something that's going to be really beneficial for a large chunk of our users that's great and i thought i'd turn it over to uh 
to uh, Danielle for a little bit to talk uh, with Helen, although everyone's free to jump in about um, sort of the training and the customer focus and the customer success sort of aspect of Woodpecker and how that's been working. Sure. So Helen, are you responsible for making sure the customers all get trained up on how to use it? Is that accurate? That is accurate. That is exactly right. And um, so, and, and that can be, that looks very different depending on the, um, you know, the attorney, the practice or, or, or the firm. Uh, we have some people that are very, very much do-it-yourselfers and um, just dig in. And, I, I, you know, we, I, we've determined that if people have um, good familiarity with Excel, that they seem to be able to like dive in and pick it right up on their own. And they might just need some, you know, some question, um, some answers to some very specific questions. Um, then we have other folks who might need a little bit more, um, a little bit more assistance. So we'll do some onboarding calls, you know, make, take one of their documents so that it's contextually relevant, you know, show them how to convert it you know, to, to templatize that document. And then of course, provide um, support while the, the whole time that they're, uh, that their customers are checking in every month, making sure that they have everything that they need. And, um, uh, you know, just reminding them that we're available to them. That's awesome. Just curious, how many of your clients do you find are well-versed in Excel? I ask only because I'm the one who does most of our Excel training for our clients, and I find most people are absolutely terrified to touch it and even begin entering data. So if you've got clients who are well-versed in it, uh, I think they are probably uh, unique. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know if they're like, expert levels but they know they, they they're familiar um with the basics of excel how to what a formula is what a macro is things of that nature oh that's awesome i'm so glad you have clients that are well versed at that because so often i find um attorneys and their support staff are just terrified of that software i, I don't know what it is they went to law school they'll go litigate they'll get in a you know in it with opposing counsel and all of that but excel just seems to terrify them yeah, and um, and a lot of them will own that. They'll, you know, I've actually heard um, attorneys say, you know, that they apologize for being woefully um, deficient with their technical skills, which I think they're being a little hard on themselves. But I think it's not something that they focused on in law school, um, and and that they're very hyper aware of it. And um, so that does come up in conversations as well. Yeah, I'd like to think law schools are changing to focus a little bit more on the technology as it is really becoming integral to the law practice. Not so much, you know, a decade or two ago, but hopefully they're starting to do that now. I feel like long, younger lawyers um, are much more comfortable with technology, having grown up with it. And they want to be able to do things on their Macs and their iPads and all of that. So hopefully as you're getting more of the uh, younger crowd, they feel more comfortable with it. And I find they really want to do things themselves, which is why I think you guys are a really good fit for them. Hey Helen, Helen, what do you think your your best training experience has been so far? Where where you guys have gone in, they've picked it up easily, and it's really made a difference. Huh? That's a, that's a good question. I don't know if I have a specific story. I don't have anything that stands out as you know um, being. Uh, um, somebody be picking it up exceptionally quickly or like, taking a very long time. I, what I find um, works really well. And, you know, in my experience is that um, we, people used to be very uh, 
anxious to get on, you know, enthusiastic about getting on an onboarding call and getting some training, but they really hadn't used the product at all. So when you're mm-hmm. trying to talk to them, they don't have a lot of contextual relevance for what you're saying. Um, whereas sort of like the academic process, I have found that if I, if I tell people or I suggest to people rather that they go in and they play with it for a week or so, choose your easiest template, walk before you run. I know people are excited, right? They get the product because what they want to do is solve their biggest pain point, which is some complex document that's 50 to 75 pages long, but that's not a great place to start, right? So to take a simple document and to start there, convert that, and then we meet up in a week. And then I find that the conversations conversations are much more meaningful and the retention is um, much more, is much greater because they have, they've tried it. They've run into some questions. They've run into some, um, maybe issues. They, they, they thought something was someplace and they were, it, it, that's not where it was. And so when we get on the phone in 15 minutes time, I can answer all of their questions and I can literally almost hear the light bulbs going off when, when I'm talking to them. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. Cause I think, I think having that context and that relevance on the end user part is, is, is really vital to a lot of these projects. Um, you know, I've, I've had some experiences where We've gone into firms and they've wanted, you know, a set and, you know, we get buy-in from like two people and, you know, those two people end up becoming the cheerleaders, but it's really hard to get other people to see the benefit of, of document automation sometime, unless you actually sit down at the desk with them and go, okay, we're going to do all your work today, you know, <laughs> and, right. and actually, and actually walk them through it. And then all of a sudden the light bulb goes off and they're like, well, why didn't I do this, you know, six months ago? And it's like, well, you just didn't, didn't want to, you know, give it the opportunity. And I think, I think getting people to give you that chance is always, is always a little bit tricky. And so I think it's, it's always hard to, you know, it's it's nice to have that that capability where they can go in and play around with it and, and actually try to use it. Um, but that's uh, and once they do that, I think it's a much easier process to get them get them onboarded. Yes, absolutely. And and once they're in the, you know, there, it's a tiny learning curve. I mean, it is little. It is a new piece of software, so it has its own menu and it has its own functionality, and you're going to have to learn that. But I have found um, in our in our ideal customer profile, somebody who has at least basic Excel skills and has basic technical skills, um, you know, within 15 to 30 minutes really starts, it really all starts to make sense to them and really can understand mm-hmm. like the, how the logic and how the software is designed. Oh, that's great. That's great. And do you guys, do you guys, I mean, do you, do you ever just give people sample templates and let them run with those just to kind of get them up to speed on that, on that level? We do. We, it is part of our onboarding process. So um, when it, it, right in the application, first time that you open it, one of the suggestions that we'll make is that we have sample templates on our website that you can go and you can just download. So they've already been templatized so that you can just go in and you can just populate them and play with them and edit fields. Um, you know, no harm, no foul. It's not your, one of your documents. Um, so we, we, have, we have made that suggestion. We do make that suggestion in the, um, in the product onboarding process. That's great. Do you find most a lot of people take a take that opportunity to 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 use those? I think Alex, we have found that people do um, actually use those templates for that reason. Yeah, they do. Yeah, and I think that um, the the main goal for uh, for these these templates, right, is sort of just like a. I mean, we make them available for free, of course, to whoever whoever wants to use them. The goal is to like give someone a little bit of inspiration uh, mm-hmm. and sort of show them like what the top of the mountain looks like. Um, so they can ideally see that, okay, well, maybe this actually isn't, uh, 
you know, so crazy and so, you know, such like a pie in the sky idea. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea is to, to give people the ability to just see like, this is how something would actually be set up. And I think, I think even if someone just downloads it up front and takes a peek, then that even if they don't use it, right, that even just kind of breaks down some walls. Yeah, I think I think examples always break down walls. I think that's a good way to put that. I'll tell, I can tell you about my, um, an onboarding experience I had recently that was a little bit confusing. So it was a Zoom call and I get on the call and it's a young, what seems to be teenage girl on the, on the screen. So I'm like, oh, um, you know, I, are you, uh, are you the attorney? And she's like, no, actually my mother's the attorney. I'm deferring college for a year because of the coronavirus. So my mother's charged me with doing her document automation project for the next year while I'm sitting wow. here at home. Oh, wow. I know, she, that was the, I'll be honest with you, that was the fast. She, uh, she knew things about Word. I didn't know. She was definitely a digital native. She picked it up in about five minutes. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's a great story. That's a great story. Maybe she needs a side job for the next year and you could have her as a uh, as a <laughs> spokesman or something. I or know, a, right? Like she could be a trainer or a template builder. Yeah, absolutely. Any anything that, you know, you get someone out there who's young and excited and likes using it, that'd be that'd be awesome. I also really liked how you were very, very diplomatic when you were looking for a story. And it made me think that all of your users must be equally intelligent and beautiful, that you couldn't come up with a, with any sort of horror story. So that's awesome. Uh, so we, um, I think what we'll do now is I'm going to turn it over to Helen or Alex, whoever's going to do our document fact. So for those of you who've been a uh, longtime listeners, you know, at the end of each uh, episode, we do a little bit of a document fact, something that happened in our case for the, the month of October that we're putting this out in and, uh, you know, something interesting, whatever. So Alex, Helen, take it away. Okay. Um, I'm going to take that. So our document fact is that in 1864, on October 31st, Nevada was admitted as um, our 36th state. And this is super significant because that was the year that Abraham Lincoln was running for president. This was October 31st. At the time, he had a lot of territorial um, sort of friends and colleagues in Nevada, and they were all Republican. And at that time, the Republican Party was a little bit more liberal. So it was super. He really wanted to get um, Nevada's statehood because he knew that they would help him not only with his election, but also for his proposed 13th Amendment to uh, abolish slavery. And um, on October 31st, it became admitted as a state. The Nevada constitutional delegation sent the longest telegram ever up to that point to Washington, D.C., at the cost of $3,416, which in today's money is about $100,000. Oh, my God. Right? That is it. That is an amazing document fact. I think that might that might be up there with uh, whatever the best one would be. I don't know what the best one would be. I think that is the best Mine's one, Jeff. We might bring one. Helen back to do all the document facts. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, th- I think we might. Plus, uh, at least on Alex's end, it plays to the hometown. Of, you know, play to play to Illinois. So that's good. <laughs> yep. <laughs> all right. Well, well, we we really appreciate having uh, you guys on. Um, been an excellent conversation. I think it's the most animated John's been in a while. So talking about developing and really hit the spot for him on a Thursday afternoon, or maybe he's already yep. started drinking. Uh, <laughs> so not yet, uh, not, not yet. Uh, so for our episode uh, twenty-eight for October of twenty twenty. 
we're going to call it done for uh, Docs After Dark. Again, you have any comments for the podcast, any questions that you have on Woodpeckers, send them to comments at docsafterdark.com, and we'll either respond to them or forward them to the appropriate place. Uh, so, again, episode 28, October 2020. I'm Jeff Schoenberger. I'm Danielle Davis-Rowe. And I'm John Federico. Thanks for listening. <laughs>